Thanks for checking out this sermon at New Beginnings. As a church, we exist to become an authentic, biblical community. That transforms our city and impacts the world. With the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to make you aware of a few things before we begin. First, we would love to connect with you on our website. NBBCTX.org. There you can find more information about who we are. Additional resources and links to our social media network. As well as an opportunity to give. To what God is doing in and through our church. We hope you enjoy this message. All right, listen, grab your Bibles. Let's go to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Um, we're, we're continuing on this journey of this, of this uh, series called Who's Your One? And as you're making your way to, to Acts chapter 17, I kind of want to explain to you what we find in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, you see the story of the foundation of the church and uh, there's a documentary that was released a couple of years ago. It's a, it's a docudrama. My wife and I were laughing uh, a couple of nights ago because we went on what we call a staycation, which simply means yard work for Todd. That's what that means. And uh, so I've been, I've been working all week at the house, but kind of been staying home. And uh, Adrian made a comment because every night we were watching uh, documentaries. We're watching like different history moments. And, and she's like, we are really old. Like not only on vacation do we not vacate, we don't go anywhere. We're watching documentaries every week, so every night. So we really kind of crossed the threshold. So date night is Hobby Lobby, um, Luby's now. And no, not Luby's really. Uh, um, eventually it's going to be Luby's and uh, watching documentaries. But a couple of uh, years ago, they released this documentary uh, called Men Who Built America. Is anybody familiar with that? So it just tells the story of J.P. Morgan, Henry Ford, um, uh, the, the Carnegies, just different influential men through uh, American history that through their innovation and through their business mind and financial savvy, they kind of helped build America. We are the country we are today because of some of the things that those men were able to do through their businesses and innovations. Um, and, and so when you, when you think about men who built America, when you get into the book of Acts, what you're really looking at is the men and women who built the church. You're seeing characters that have been highlighted through this story to kind of help us understand how we've gotten here. Here we are, Gilmer, Texas, 2,000 years after the movement started in Israel. And the book of Acts kind of helps us understand how we got from there to here today. And so when we see this this morning, I want us to hone in on two primary characters. A guy named Paul, many of you are familiar with it, and a companion named Silas. Paul and Silas, two figures that God used to help establish the church. And I kind of want to look at their life and, and see a couple of things about them. Before we jump into the story, Acts chapter 17, verse 6, there's something that's said about Paul and Silas that I want us to lean into just for a moment. In Acts chapter 17, verse 6, that Paul and Silas are journeying through the city called Thessalonica. And as they're there, there is this pagan, this unbeliever, uh, who is opposed to Christianity. And this is his evaluation of Paul and Silas. Listen to what he says. He says, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And the reason this kind of captures my heart is because this is the reputation that my prayer is that we become and we have as a church. That whatever city, whatever community that God sends us to to plant a campus, I'm hoping that they are, say, they are saying about New Beginnings, hey, that church who's turning the world upside down has come here as well. Those people who, who are just crazy about Jesus, who are serious about his mission, man, they're so overwhelmed with this thing called the gospel, man, they're turning Texas upside down, they're turning the nation upside down, and they've come to our community as well. This is the type of reputation that I pray that we can have as 
a church. And here's the thing. God wants to use you in that way as well. That we could become men and women who are known for turning the world upside down. Here's what I love about this. This is why this is important that we press into this. Is that, that Paul and Silas are turning the world upside down, not because they had re- religious, uh, because they had uh, complete religious freedom, not because they had uh, an abundance of financial resources, not because they had a, a, a big platform at a, at a building somewhere, not because they had unlimited resources. They weren't turning the world upside down because they had political position. Here's what they had. They had the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of them. And they had a message that changed their life and they believed would change the world. And they were serious about the mission of God. That's what they had. You know what that means for you and me? Is that everything that Paul and Silas had to turn the world upside down, if you're a follower of Jesus in the room, you possess that as well. Every single one of you that are followers of Jesus, guess what you have? You have the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Here's what that means. The very power that raised Jesus from the grave is the same power that dwells inside of you. The very message that changed Paul and Silas forever and that helped them turn the world upside down is the same message that has transformed you and that God is calling you to go on mission to proclaim to the world. This is how the world is turned upside down. We don't look at the book of Acts and go, these were special people God used in a special way, in a way that they had giftings that I didn't, and they had a special gift of the Spirit that I didn't, I don't, or whatever. This is men and women who are ordinary, just like you and I, full of the Holy Spirit, a message that changed their life, and a mission that they were serious about. And if we would ever recognize the Spirit that dwells in us, the message that God has given us, and get serious about the mission, listen, it would be said of us, that group of people turned the world upside down. They turned the world upside down. And this is the passion, this is the prayer that I have. This is why we're taking this serious, this who's your one, the the names that are on the cards that are on this wall and the stack that's in uh, Pastor Matt's office of, of the names of individuals that you have identified as ones in your life that you want to run after. Listen, If we would get serious understanding who we are in Jesus, this city would never be the same again. Amen? And this is what we're running after. So I want us to look at Acts chapter 16 and look at a story where where Paul and Silas is going to be put into prison and they're going to encounter a a one, a man that we know as the Philippian jailer. And here's, here's what's interesting is when you get into the book of Acts, this turning the world upside down wasn't taking place through big assemblies. It wasn't happening through um, big gatherings of people that were coming together like Billy Graham crusades. It was Paul and Silas going through the city, engaging in relationships, and one after another sharing the gospel faithfully. In fact, in Acts chapter 16, where we get the story of Paul and Silas in, in the Philippian jailer, there's a story of three different sets of ones. There's Lydia. Lydia was a businesswoman. Uh, she was in the commercial trading. She had a, a desire to know God, but didn't know how that she might know him and, and heard that Paul and Silas were teaching and she heard the teaching. The gospel exploded in her life. It changed her life forever. History tells us that she was a major player in the advancement of the gospel um, of, of the early church, that she used her business and her position and possessions to help fund the local church. Uh, there was another uh, a woman that was engaged. We don't know her name. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. We just simply know her as this demon-possessed slave girl. Like, imagine that being your story through history. Like, they don't know my name, but they just know me as a demon-possessed slave girl. That'd really be awkward, especially if you're a guy. You know, it'd be, it'd be awkward, right? 
So this is, this is her name. So the demon-possessed slave girl. And this is what I love about the story. Paul and Silas go through Philippi, and they're preaching the gospel. And this woman was owned by these men who were leveraging the demon possession that she had, this demon influence, to perform different signs and miracles to, to, for personal gain. So they're, they're traveling and they're preaching. And you know, the scripture talks honestly about the fact that demons are real and they know who Jesus is and even understand the role that like, he's the Lord of all, right? So every time you see in the Gospels, Jesus and a demon, the demon acknowledges who Jesus is and is subservient, right? And so Paul and Silas are going through the streets proclaiming the name of Jesus and this woman is just tailing them, trying to disrupt their ministry. And I love the story and this is why I love the story. It says that Paul was annoyed with her. I love that. He was annoyed by her, and so he turns around, annoyed by this woman, and casts the demon out of her. And this really resonates in my heart as a pastor. I just want you to know. <laughs> there, there might be some people in the history of my leadership that I, I might identify as he or she is the slave demon-possessed person. I don't know. I love this. He's so annoyed by her, he just casts the demons out. Like, I, I, I love that. Um, I've, I've been tempted to do this. There's a, there's a demonic influence that we have at both campuses, and it's the demonic influences of having to go to the bathroom 14 times during a sermon. And one of these days, I'm going to get annoyed, and I'm going to throw that demon out. That's what I'm going to do. Um, I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Maybe. Um, so Paul and Silas cast the demon out, and because of this, they get arrested. This is where we pick up in the story. And here's what I want to do. I want to walk through the story, and I want us to see some truths that, that, that we discover in this story from pa, the Apostle Paul and Silas about what it means to turn the world upside down. Look at verse number 21 of chapter 16. It says, The crowd joined, him, uh, joined them in attacking Paul and Silas, and the magistrates, these are their leaders, they, they tore their clothes off, tore their garments off of them, and they gave orders uh, to beat them with rods. Verse 23, And when they afflicted... Um, Many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Now, follow the story. They, they, the crowds rally around. They attack Paul and Silas. The magistrates, the religious leaders, come along the scene. They rip their clothes off. They, they tear their garments off. And then they, they begin to beat them with rods. And then it says specifically, and when they inflicted them with many blows. So this was not a, a love tap. This was a severe, bloody, naked beating. They throw them in prison. And they order the jailer, do not let these men out. Now look what happens next. This is important because we're going to learn a lot about this Philippian jailer in the next phrase. Having received this order. What order? Don't let them loose. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, why is that important? When it says he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks, this was volitional, not a command. All, all he was commanded to do was make sure they don't get loose. And so what does he do? He puts them in the inner prison. What does that mean? They, they are put in the most secured place in the prison. They, they are put in the place where you would hold the worst criminals. And there were other prisoners there. So they were put into like solitary confinement. They were put in the, the place in the prison that the worst of the worst are put. So here you have two ministers of the gospel and they are put into the place in the prison where all of the worst criminals are put. And it's not just that. He put them in stocks. Now, before you think kind of like our mental image of stocks of just having maybe their arms secured, 
This particular type of stocks that is mentioned here is, the, is, a, is a torture device. So not only does this man volitionally put them in the worst, hardest part of the prison, he put them in stocks, which would mean that they would have their legs distorted, their body distorted, so that they would be put in, in painful positions. It would cause violent cramping, cramps in their, in their uh, legs. It would cause all kinds of, 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 of contortions so that they were in severe agony the entire time they were there. They, they were, in essence, tortured. This is important that we understand this. Bloodied, beaten, stripped naked in the deepest, darkest parts of the prison. And now they're in agony and pain. Here's the first truth I want us to write down this morning if you're taking notes. The first truth we've got to understand, if we're going to be men and women who turn the world upside down, we need to remember that the Great Commission is costly. We need to remember that the Great Commission is costly. Paul and Silas are simply obeying God's command to go and make disciples of all nations. They're just being faithful to go and preach Jesus to the world around them. They're just doing what Jesus told them to do. They're not beaten and whipped and imprisoned and now being tortured because they were walking in disobedience, but rather because they were walking in obedience. They find themselves in this place in life where, 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 where they're, they're beaten and bruised and bloodied and in pain, all because they were faithful to the mission. And if you read the book of Acts, you'll understand this is not, like, this is not an uncommon thing. I mean, the story of the book of Acts, the foundation of the church, where the church flourished and multiplied and grew to, to be what it is today, it's story after story of stoning and imprisonment and death threats and being run out of communities and hiding in the hills and being cast out of the church. It's story after story after story of the Great Commission being a costly mission. In fact, Paul, this is not rare to him. In fact, Paul would say later on, he would write about the different suffering and persecution moments of his life in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I want you to listen to the way Paul describes the cost of the Great Commission in his life. Listen to what he says. He says, five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Does that sound familiar? It's the same beating that Jesus received before being crucified. Paul says, five times that happened to me. Could you imagine how broken and bruised and beat up his body was in his latter years? All because of the faithfulness to the gospel. And in verse 25, it says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. At night and a day, I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. This last phrase really resonates with my heart as a pastor. And apart from other things, in other words, I'm not going to go through the whole list. Apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. Paul understood that the Great Commission was costly. 
that the mission of God is not going to be easy for those who would take it seriously. And now listen, I know for some of you, you're like, Pastor, you had me. Your opening was like, I was like ready to charge hell with a water pistol, man. We're going to reach the city. He's going to use me in great ways. I got the power of the Holy Spirit. I got this message that changed my life. Man, I'm ready to get after it. And now you're talking about suffering and hardship and persecution, man. I don't know that I'm in. And here's what I would say to you. I would say to you, every single one of you in the room who called Jesus Lord of your life, look at me. There are things he wants to do in you and through you to advance the the mission and expand the kingdom of God that you can't even imagine. I'm not talking to the person next to you. I'm talking about you. There are ways that God wants to use you to transform your neighborhood and your family and your workplace to expand the kingdom that when your life is over, no matter how long or how brief it is, that you can look back and you can see the wake of a a God who did things in you you could never dream of on your own. That is a reality. Listen, I believe God wants to use New Beginnings Baptist Churches, a church in ways to plant campuses and to mobilize the gospel around the world in ways that would blow our mind if he was to say it to us. But there will be a cost. And that path is not easy. And that road is hard. And I love you enough as your pastor to not bait and switch you. A life on mission is a hard life. And there's cost involved. And listen, by the way, just be honest, wasn't Jesus kind of open and honest about that? Like, Jesus is very upfront. There's no fine print. You're not talking about fine print, right? Like, you know, you read, you see the, kind of the details that they don't really want you to see when you're signing a contract or when you're buying something. Like, for instance, if you were to, like everyone, well, the illustration I use is, um, like, you're, you're watching television. All of a sudden, they have this uh, drug that they're trying to sell you that would help you with heartburn or indigestion. And, uh, and so what they do, they have a guy at the ballpark with his family, and, and uh, he eats the hot dog. And then later on, he's just sitting there, and he's not enjoying his kids, and he's going into depression, and he's holding his stomach. And, but he ate a hot dog with chili and cheese and peppers and onions. Of course he's going to have heartburn and indigestion, right? And you're thinking, you're an idiot. And so they show him, and he's all depressed. And then the doctor comes on, and he begins to do the little diagram of the person where like their 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 like their 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 intestines are on fire and there's flames and and it's like really dark and this guy's about to die then all of a sudden he takes the pill and then all of a sudden now it's like there's a happy dance in his stomach and like you know what I'm saying and it's now it's blue and it's nice and you're and then it always ends like this then he goes now he's at the concession stand and he's got a smile on his face and he's got two chili dogs this time we don't even address the heart attack that's in this man's future right we're just worried about the indigestion. And I, I don't know about you, but I look at that and I'm like, man, I have indigestion. I have heartburn. I love chili dogs with peppers and onions. I want to get that. And then at the very end, in like one font on the screen, there's a paragraph that tells you all of the risk involved with this medication. And then they get a speed reader on there that goes through all the lists. And when you catch the words every now and then, you recognize I'm better off with heartburn, right? Thank you, right? That, that's the fine print. Listen to me, there is no fine print with Jesus. He's explicit. You want to follow me? You got to deny yourself. It's not about you. You got to take up your cross, which is not a a piece of jewelry. It's It's a place of execution. And you got to follow me no matter where I lead you. 
In fact, this is what Jesus says about following him. Again, no fine print. John chapter 16, verse 1, it says this. Jesus is speaking. He's preparing his disciples for his departure and the mission he's sending them on. Listen to what he says. I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. Now, the question we need to ask, if this is verse 1, what things is he saying to them? If you read chapter 15, Jesus tells them of the suffering and the persecution that's waiting them. He says things like this. No, no student is greater than the teacher. If the teacher suffered, if the teacher was persecuted, the student's going to be persecuted as well. No, no servant is going to be better than the master. If they called the master the son of Beelzebub and they cast him out, what do you think they're going to be doing to the servants of the master? And then Jesus comes in chapter 16. He says, and I'm telling these things to you. I'm warning you so that when they come, you won't fall away. In other words, if Jesus just tells us, hey, come follow me, and your life is going to be happy, healthy, wealthy. You'll have everything you've ever wanted. And then all of a sudden, now it costs us. What are we going to say? I didn't sign up for this. I didn't read the fine print. I'm out. Jesus said, no, no, I'm telling you up front so that when what I'm telling you comes, you're not going to be surprised by it and you won't fall away. He goes on to say in verse 2, listen to what Jesus kind of expounds on this. He says, they will put you out of the synagogue, out of church. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you, this is strong language, will think he's offering God a service. And listen to this. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when, not if, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you. In other words, Jesus is saying the Great Commission is costly, and I'm telling you up front. And when the suffering comes and the persecution comes and the hardship comes and the difficulties come and the road gets rough and the road gets narrow and there's no one around you and you feel all alone and all abandoned, when you find yourself in prison and in chains, for my name's sake, I want you to remember, Jesus said this would happen. The Great Commission is costly. Can I help you? It's worth it. It's worth it. In fact, Paul and Silas found something in Jesus that comfort and convenience couldn't offer them. Look what happens in verse 25. Verse 25, so they're beaten, they're bloody, they're bruised, they're in the inner prison, they're in stocks, they're being tortured. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So let me just kind of lay the cards on the table, all right? This is my authentic biblical community moment of the day, all right? Can I be honest with you? I'm going to be anyway. I don't know that this would be my response. Can I get a witness in that? Or are we just liars in the room this morning, Right? Like, I, I don't know. I'll be honest with you. Like, I've had a lot less happen to me, and I've been furious at God, right? Like, how could you do this? Like, how could you? I, I, I didn't expect that to happen. I had to sit 45 minutes at the doctor's office. <laughs> Where are you, God? Where are you, right? That, th this is our life, right? And we're angry, beaten, whipped, in prison, being tortured, and yet they're worshiping. They're praising. They're singing. How could they do this? It's because they found something in Jesus more valuable than comfort. That Jesus was worth any price they would pay to make his name known. And I love what happens here. It says that the prisoners, the other prisoners, the ruthless criminals, 
in the prison. They were listening to them. Look, look up at me for a moment, church. Listen. I believe the seasons of our life of the greatest suffering might be the moments where we preach our greatest sermon. I believe the seasons of our life of the greatest suffering might be the seasons of our life where we preach the greatest sermons. And I'll tell you why. If we're the type of Christians that only bless God and worship and sing and marvel at His greatness and and talk about His goodness when there is health and there is wealth and there is ease and there is prosperity and the road is smooth and it's wide and we got companions and all is good, if that's the only time we truly worship and make much of Him, here's what the world sees. The world sees nothing more than an echo of their value system with Jesus tagged on the end. The world is looking at our lives in those moments and they're going, of course. Man, I want health and wealth and the road to be easy and lots of friends. And man, if that's what, if Jesus will bless me with those things, man, I'll worship him. And what the world sees is nothing more than an echo of their own value system. Christ is even in the equation. When we're only praising Jesus in the good times, could it be that we're not actually praising Jesus, but praising what Jesus gives us? You know what captures the world's attention? You know what causes prisoners to listen? It's when the bottom drops out and we worship. It's when the world looks at our life and they see what we're going through and they see the cost of following Jesus and they see the suffering and and maybe circumstances that Jesus is making us go through or are allowing us to go through. In those moments when we worship and we sing, when the world says to us, like Job's wife said to him, man, just curse God and die. And yet we worship and with our lips we honor him and we make much of him. The world looks at us and says there is something that they found in Christ that is greater than anything they can find in this world. And I want to know what that is. That's what's going to turn the world upside down. It's when we understand the great commission is costly, but what we find in Jesus is worth the price. This is why Paul says what he says in 2 Corinthians. He's, he makes this statement, For I consider that the light and momentary afflictions of this life are not to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed in me. And I read that verse, and I just read to you his suffering and persecution resume, right? How could he call that light and momentary? That's not light affliction. That's heavyweight persecution. But Paul says, when I look at all of the list of suffering, the things that I've endured for Christ, when I think about the suffering and the, and the, and the, and the challenges that I've faced, and I compare that to what I've found in Jesus, this is all worth it, and it is light, and it is momentary, and it is passing, but what I have in him is of far greater value, and it's eternal, and it's not going away. Therefore, I willingly endure this because I have this. That is what captures the heart of the world. Which I love what happens in the story next. Look at verse 26. This is amazing. So they're they're beaten, bloodied, bruised in the prison, being tortured, having a worship service in the middle of that. And God moves. And suddenly 
there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. So in this particular day, if you were a Roman guard and your prisoners got loose, it didn't matter why, the reason why they got loose, you were going to be dishonored, tortured, and murdered. And so to save his family, the, dis- dis- the, 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 the being dishonored, and to save himself, being tortured, he decided to end it all, but Paul intervened. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Here's the second truth I want you to write down. Truth number two is this. We must be more committed to our calling than our comfort. We must be more committed to our calling than to our comfort. If we're going to be men and women who turn the world upside down, this has got to be a resolve that we understand our calling and we're not going to let comfort get in the way. Now, I want you to think, this is another authentic biblical moment for me. All right, so the thing about this, they're in prison for pursuing Jesus and proclaiming Jesus, and here they are, beaten and whipped, being tortured, severe pain, and yet in the midst of their faithfulness of being arrested, they're worshiping, and now the earthquake. That is my sign from God that this is your get-out-of-jail-free card. Right? Anybody else want to confess that? The same liars are in the room. If they were writing a story about me, it'd get to this verse, it'd be a simple verse. He gone. That's the verse right there. (laughs) That's it. But they stayed. Why would they stay? Because Paul and Silas understood that the miracle of the earthquake was not for their salvation, but for the jailers. And they were more committed to their calling than their comfort. They understood that God had placed them in the prison for a reason and they were committed to staying in the prison until God's reason was fulfilled. Far too many of us, we bail the moment it gets hard. We bail the moment the road gets rough, the road gets near, the companions start to bail. The moment following Jesus calls us and he leads us down paths that we wouldn't naturally in our own inclination choose for ourselves. Whenever those moments arise in our life, oftentimes we bail rather than saying, God, you've brought me to this season, to this situation, to this moment, because there's something in the calling that you've given me to go and make disciples that's going to be fulfilled in the moment. We want to bail on the situation and the circumstances and rather than fulfill God's reason for us being there. And what we need to do is have a higher commitment to our calling. And this changes the way we pray. Now listen, it's not wrong to pray for God to uh, heal us or pray for God to deliver us or pray for God to provide for us. But in the midst of that prayer, there needs to be a deeper focus on God. Do in me and through me what you want where you have me. So rather than in that rough season or at that rough employ- place of employment or that rough relationship or, or in that season of life, you're like, man, I don't like where God has led me. Here's what we need to do. Because our commitment is to our calling, our prayer rather than God uh, free me from the situation needs to be God fulfill your purpose for me being in the situation. We are naturally, incl- naturally inclined to comfort, are we not? Come on now. For some of you are like, 
dang it, I just bought that thing yesterday, and now i got to take it back, right? And uh, we're all like this. A couple of weeks ago, I was laughing with our, our Spring Hill staff because uh, for years I have sat in a chair in my office that I despise. Like, I despise my chair, my office chair, or might I say former office chair. And because um, it was, I mean, I think it was bought used like when they bought it for me nine years ago. Like, it's, it's a terrible chair. I've complained about it. It's like sitting on plywood. And I've, I've just been telling our staff how much I've suffered for Jesus over the last several years. I mean, I have I've really been in it. Paul and Silas, all of us, we have something in common here, right? And, and so I was complaining about this. Well, as you know, uh, you know, Pastor Connor uh, transitioned, and, you know, I would consider Connor my best friend until he abandoned us. And then, um, but now, no, I'm teasing, I'm teasing. Um, so I walked in his office uh, a couple of weeks ago after he left. I just kind of walked through his office, and I never noticed this. Dude has the best chair I've ever seen in my life. I'm talking, it is like the Mac Daddy of all chairs. Like you walk in, the hallelujah chorus starts to sing. Your, like, like it's just amazing. I walked in and I looked at it. I'm like, this is, it's oversized, cushion like this. I sat down and I like sank in it. I swear to you, a masseuse came out of the closet and started massaging me. And my first thought when it hit my, I was like, I thought he loved me. Like I thought we were boys. And so I, I did what only a normal person would do. I complained. I pulled the chairs out. I said, Amy, come here. I want you to know what my brother has been putting me through. Sit in his chair. And she said, oh, this is really nice. I said, sit in my chair. And she's like, oh, this is God awful. This is terrible. And I'm like, you see, I, I, we're not even friends anymore, I don't think. Well, guess where that chair is right now? That chair is now known as formerly Connor's chair. Uh, I was telling, I was laughing with our staff about it, and I, one of our, our staff members, I was kind of picking fun, and I was like, I can't believe I, I had suffered all these years. And he, he was trying to be funny. He was like, uh, I wonder if any of our missionaries in Africa are having that same conversation right now. I'm like, it was always that guy, right? Look, hey, listen, we're all bent toward comfort. The easy path, the easy road, the shortest distance, We're all bent toward that. But the call of Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm calling you to the rough road. Jesus even says, it's the rough road. It's the narrow road that leads to life. And few want to take that road. But we will never be men and women who turn the world upside down if we're more committed to our comfort than our calling. Listen, there are times where we've got to choose the prison cell when we could be released. Because we know there's a greater purpose that God has for us being there. I love what happens next in the story. This is where you begin to see life transformation. So they, the earthquake happens. The, the man was going to kill himself. And, 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 and he runs in and finds him there. Look what happens in verse number 30. It says, then, the jailer, then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And I love this. This is a massive question here. This is an important question. And maybe he heard Paul and Silas worshiping and praising Jesus in the midst of their suffering. And he's like, man, I've never had one people that, I've, that, that, that have just been put into prison for preaching a message that seems to be a good message locked up like this. But I've never seen people that I've tortured respond this way. 
And maybe he knows their reputation and knows the story of what they've been doing in Philippi all this time. All really we know is there is a a burning question that immediately comes to the surface from the heart of this man when he recognizes that they could have left, but they stayed. That his life could have been over, but because they, they, they loved him and cared for him and they knew what would happen to him if they leave, they stayed. This man bursts with this question, what must I do to be saved? In other words, I know something is missing. I know I'm broken. I know there's something that's disconnected me from God. There's something in my life that's void, and there's something in you. You have that thing that I'm looking for. Tell me how I can have it. And I love the way Dr. Luke in in Acts writes this. He says, the man asked, what must I do to be saved? Here's what I believe, church. Listen to me. I believe this is the fundamental question every unbeliever is asking, even though they don't know they're asking it. This is the heart cry of the human condition. What must I do to be saved? So every person that pursues possessions and accomplishment and amassing wealth and, and, and letting their ambition to become more, and that, I mean, I just, they just think that if I can be enough, do enough, have enough, accomplish enough, maybe I'll feel whole and satisfied. Here's what they're doing. What must I do to be saved? This is what they're chasing. It's the same question. What must I do? How much must I have? What must I accomplish? What is there that I can gain that's finally going to give me the salvation to make me whole in my heart? Every single person that's running from relationship to relationship, trying to find approval of their friends, of their mama or daddy, or their peers, or whatever it might be of society, those who are pursuing relationships, hoping somewhere along the way, someone's going to love me enough and give me enough approval so that this void of my heart would go away. That person is, in essence, asking the question, what must I do to be saved? And you and I have the answer to the question. I want you to see the way Paul and Silas answered. I love this. They, They said... And they said, I love this, you need to underline, and they said. You know what that means for us? If we're going to engage the world and answer the question, we've got to open our mouth. They spoke to them. They didn't hide behind podcasts. Come to church, let my preacher tell you. Go read this blog. Here's the latest book. They, no, they, they engaged, they said, they talked, they engaged with the gospel. And listen to what they said. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. In other words, believe in the Lord Jesus. And if your household, if your family, if your friends would believe in the Lord Jesus, they'll be saved too. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once and he and all his family. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is radical transformation. You say, what do you mean transformation? In case you didn't know, historically, Roman jailers were not known for their hospitality. Right? Like their job was not to make you feel comfortable. It's not like they were in, hey, can I get you anything? No, this is a man who put them in the inner prison, torturing them, putting them in uncomfortable positions because this man found joy in inflicting pain on other people. 
He was not interested in, are you hungry? Are you wounded? How can I serve you? But here's what, you, what happens in the text. You see this man have such a radical transformation that this hard-hearted jailer who was indifferent to the pain of those that he was in charge of is now bandaging wounds, serving a meal, inviting them to his house for a party, all because his life was transformed by the gospel. You know what that tells you and me in the room? I don't care who your one is, how far from God they are, how hard their heart is, how deep into sin they are mired. If they will turn to Jesus, they too will be saved and transformed forever. There is no sin so great that God's grace isn't greater. This man is transformed. How is he transformed? Here's statement number three. We're going to see the world turned upside down for the gospel, listen, we must share the gospel with courage and clarity. We must share the gospel with courage and clarity. You say, what do you mean courage? Think about who Paul and Silas are talking to. This man asked the question, what must I do to be saved? This man is a Roman employee. He, he works for the Roman government. One of the greatest, largest, number one rule in this day and time was you could attribute lordship to no one other than Caesar. Caesar is the only one you could declare as Lord. And if you were to declare anyone Lord other than Caesar, it was punishable by death because it was considered high treason. You could worship any God you want to worship as long as you don't call that God Lord. That was a title reserved only for Caesar. And here this man is in prison. This hard-hearted man looks at Paul and says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul, with courage and confidence, looks at him and says, you have got to believe that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. You've got to understand there is a Lord and it's not Caesar. It is Jesus Christ who we pursue, who we proclaim. And unless you declare that he is Lord, you will not be saved. How much courage must that have taken? That man in a moment could have given orders for Paul and Silas to be executed. But Paul didn't water down the gospel to make it palatable to the culture. He just simply told the truth courageously. Listen, we need to stand with confidence and lovingly declare with courage to the world, listen, there is no name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved other than the name of Jesus. And we must courageously stand in a culture of tolerance a culture that wants to try to put all faith systems in the same category, we must be able to declare Jesus is Lord unapologetically. And they also do it with clarity. I love this. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus. That's simple enough, and you will be saved. And then it says in verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him. If you want to underline a statement, that statement literally means, and they unpacked the gospel for them. They explained the gospel. They simply told the man about Jesus and what he had done. I think we make it way more difficult than what it is. I mean, our friends come to us, life is in crisis, marriage is falling apart, you know, job issues, relationship issues, they've got substance addiction, and they come to us for help. And we always want to talk about the program they need to be in, the book they need to read, the 14 steps to whatever, and the fundamental really question that they need answered is how or what must I do to be saved? We need to get to the place where we just simply with clarity say, let me just explain to you who Jesus is, what he did, and how he can change your life. 
So what does Paul do? Paul, the man asks this question, what must I do to be saved? Let me explain it to you. Hey, listen, uh, Philippian jailer, we don't know your name. Um, you, you're a sinner, right? Like, you know you're a sinner. Yeah, I think, I, I think I'm a sinner. No, 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 the stocks that you put us in, that was really not nice. That's sin. Like, we didn't like that. God didn't like that. That's sin. So you're a sinner. But I want you to know that in the midst of your sin, God loves you. And he made you to know. And your sin separates you. But God, in his grace and mercy, has sent his son to live the life you couldn't live. He was sinless. He died on the cross. And, and I could imagine the jailer kind of mind being blown by God that would do such great things to love a, a sinner like him. And, and do you understand what I'm saying? Oh, yes, I understand what you're saying. And, and if you'll trust that Jesus died and he resurrected, hold up, wait a minute. You're saying he resurrected. Well, that's why we call him Lord, because he defeated the grave and he's alive. And all the Caesars, they keep going to their grave. But this man got up from the grave and he he's Lord. And this mind, this man's mind is being blown right now. And, and then Paul and Silas just say, listen, and if you'll believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus, he'll change your life and forgive your sins and you'll forever be changed. Here's the great news for you. If you've been saved, you know everything you need to know to help someone else become a Christian and be saved. We just need with courage and clarity to point them to Jesus. To simply explain, I had a guy in my office a couple of weeks ago. He came to the family night for VBS at our Spring Hill campus. He just happened to be invited. Circumstances, I won't go into all the details, but it was a divine thing. He, he, he comes to me after uh, when we were breaking up to go out to hang out. Um, and he just says, I need to chat with you. His, his girlfriend had committed suicide uh, a couple of days before at his house. And he was just a broken man. The next day he sat down in my office. And, and his, his fundamental question was this. He didn't ask it like this, but this is his fundamental question. What must a person do to be saved? Because he's like, I, I don't know if my fiance is in heaven or not. I want to know if she's in heaven. I want to know. And, and, and ultimately, he was asking, what must a person do to be saved? So I just asked him, I said, what do you think it takes for a person to be saved? And I, I loved his honesty because he pulled the whole East Texas thing of, of, of kind of spouting off different religious philosophies that he's heard in Baptist churches that are all bad. And he's like, well, you got to be a good. And, you gotta, and he's going this. And finally, he just looked at me. He's like, I ain't got a clue. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you came to the right place because I do. And I just shared the gospel with him. I didn't go into philosophy. I didn't go into giving him counseling. I didn't walk him through six steps of grief management. I just walked him through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and told him that Jesus could change his life if he would repent of his sin and declare him as Lord. And with big tears flowing down his face, you know what he told me? I've never heard that before. Been in church his entire life in East Texas. I've never heard that before. You know why? Because we're terrible at the clarity of the gospel. He gave his life to Jesus. His life's been forever changed. Now listen, here's the, here's the reality. There's a great mission that God has called us to. There's a great mission that God has called us to. But listen, it's costly. And it's going to demand that we are more committed to our calling than our comfort. And we need to courageously, courageously, with clarity, simply share the gospel. And listen, if we'll do those things, we'll turn this city upside down for the glory and the fame of Jesus. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads if you would. And for some of you in the room this morning, I want to just say to you, your focus doesn't need to be the one because you are the one. 
You are the one. You are the, the one that needs Jesus. You are the one this morning that have come in this place and the heartbeat of your life is what must I do to be saved? This morning, I want to just simply tell you, call upon the name of the Lord. Declare that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. That simply means that you believe that you're a sinner But Jesus lived a sinless life and died in your place to atone your sin, to pay the price you couldn't pay in a thousand lifetimes. He was resurrected on the third day to give you life. And if you'll trust in him, you will be saved. That means that you stop trusting in whatever it is you're trusting in. It's not a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of religion and a little bit of you. It's not, it's Jesus only. And for some of you this morning, the burning question of your life is, what must I do to be saved? You've heard the answer, and I'm calling you to respond by faith. If the Spirit is wooing you, be saved today. Others of you this morning, you need to recognize the question that your friends, your family, your coworkers, your kids, your neighbors are asking, what must I do to be saved? And I'm asking you over the next few minutes, if you know Jesus, to ask Him to give you the one that He's placed in your life to run after them, to understand the cost involved, to understand you're giving up comfort and then to give you the courage and the clarity to share the good news of hope. Let's just ask Jesus for that and see what he does. Father, I love you and I praise, I praise you, Lord, that you've given us this mission and that you, you've not given fine print. You've been open about the cost involved, but God, you, you are worth the discomfort and God, I pray for courage. So God, let us this morning be men and women who are committed to turning the world upside down by running after our one. And for those in this room who are the one, I pray that you will free them from whatever would hold them from fully surrendering to you. Call their name so that they can call on your name and be saved today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. God, let's worship. Let's